is the Electile Dysfunction Podcast with Ashton Cohen. Way more interesting than anything you're listening to on NPR. Probably less exciting than what you're watching on OnlyFans. Bruh. We're going to talk about the issues that really matter. Our country, our economy, the Fed, QE, GDP, BTC, NFTs, AOC, the CCP, Cardi B, Ow. Yeezy, Yellow Socks, Iran, Joe Biden's dementia, Come on, man. and probably sex robots. We stand for a free and open debate and exchange of ideas. And if you disagree with anything we talk about, you are a racist and no better than Hitler. What? Let's get started. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Electile Dysfunction Podcast, Ashton Cohen. I am your host, Ashton Cohen. I'm here today with Jimmy Song, Bitcoin developer and entrepreneur. He is uh, someone whose work and analysis I've followed for quite some time. And uh, I think he's one of the most informative and bright people in the space. So his most recent book is Thank God for Bitcoin, which I particularly enjoyed. It was a, you co-authored it with seven other people. Is that mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Yeah, that's correct. It, it's, a, it's a fascinating piece because it really focuses on the moral case for Bitcoin, which mm-hmm. is, I think, going to be a theme of, of this podcast. I like that, that realm of analysis. Um, first, Jamie, I'd like to start with what attracted you to Bitcoin? What is it in Jimmy Song's background that made him see the potential for this from a fairly early stage in its development relative to the uh, professional financial advisors and Ivy League MBAs? What, what was it in your background experience that made you understand this when, when they missed the boat? Yeah, uh, so first of all, I, I've been a programmer since I was like nine years old, right? Like I, I got my first computer back then and I've been programming ever since all through high school, middle school, high school, you know, a little bit in college and then uh, certainly professionally right after college, uh, you know, that's that's been my world. Uh, so I was well positioned um, as a programmer, um, like understanding technology and public key cryptography and things like that um, to kind of get it. Uh, and the other thing that I would say is uh, 2008, I think that uh, that opened my eyes uh, quite a bit uh, in regards to, you know, what the actual financial system was like. I, I still mm-hmm. remember uh, like uh, you know, I, I lived in Boston for a while. And when I first moved there, uh, you know, there was this big project in Boston called the Big Dig. I, I don't know if you know about that. No, it was, it, it was uh, extending, I, I think it was Highway 95 uh, and Highway 90 uh, or, or something like that. And mm-hmm. they had to dig this huge tunnel um, to go under the city so that, um, you know, it, it would be done. And at the time, uh, you know, the when it was originally made, the the funds for the project, like it was like what I thought back then was an astronomical number. It was mm-hmm. it, it was going to cost two billion dollars, mm-hmm. and I was like, two Trump billion. Day. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, like, and I was like, oh, this is so crazy. I can't believe that. But there were cost overruns, and the project ended up costing closer to twenty billion dollars. Mm-hmm. And and like you know, one one of the things was, hey, it's not our money; it's the federal government that's like paying for it or whatever. Right. I remember thinking, okay, like that is an insane amount of money, right? Like especially back then, like twenty billion dollars. Like, what the hell are you using all of that money for? And, and that that was kind of what I was I was thinking. Then two thousand eight comes along, and all those numbers look quaint in comparison, right? Because mm-hmm. you know, like they start talking about bailouts and like they're throwing numbers like. You know, $800 billion TARP bailout. And I'm like, okay, something is wrong here, right? Because how can you spend that much money, right? Like you, that, that's an insane amount of money. Why, why do you need that much money in order to quote unquote provide liquidity to the system or whatever? So I started um, learning about what was going on and like actually looking into it. And it's like, okay, wh- where's the money coming from? And it's like a, a famous quote by like Bernanke, like it's like, aren't taxpayers paying for this? He's like, no, actually, we're, we're going to, uh, you know, issue the liquidity out of the Federal Reserve. And like I found out later, yeah, it, it is actually taxing. Uh, it's just in a way that it's not obvious. So I was well positioned, I, I think, from the disillusionment of 2008 and being a programmer um, such that when I first encountered it in 2011, um, it, it really struck me as something that could work because I was like, okay, it's, uh, it, it's software-based, so you can always check stuff. And the other thing was there was a hard 21 million cap. And almost immediately after I heard that, it's like, okay, th- this, this could be good money then. Um, and that's, uh, that's how I sort of like entered the space is uh, reading about it and knowing, okay, wow, 
there's a 21 million limit. This this going to kind of get crazy. Um, and you know, if it catches on at all, um, you know, I did the math. I'm like, okay, it's this could be potentially worth millions of dollars per Bitcoin um, at current prices. So I was like, okay. So um, so I I I did get in, uh, into it from a sort of like a programming and economics perspective and. Um, you know, I, I think a lot of the people that did get in, um, you know, relatively early tend to have that kind of background rather than the MBA fintech people. Mm -hmm. And where, where, what was your level of conviction, say, in, at that time in that 2011 area? Were you confident enough to say, OK, I'm going to put the majority of, of my fiat in this? Or did you sort of dip your toe in? and say, I, I think this is a very promising technology. I'm not sure how it's going to work relative to the potential government regulations coming along or you know, all sorts of uh, maybe unseen risks. This is the first thing of its kind, really, this digital scarcity concept. Uh, mm -hmm. what, what was your, how did your conviction sort of build from that, from, from 2011 onward? Was it, automatic, was it sort of like in 2011, you sort of got your full conviction in it or did it sit, take a few years? Uh, well, it, it took a few years. So mm -hmm. at the beginning, it was just sort of like, okay, I found out about the 21 million limit. And I was like, okay, right. well, um, I think I, I should at least get a little bit. Um, and it took me a while to actually get that little bit. Um, you know, it was really annoying at the time to actually go get Bitcoin. The main exchange was a place called Mt. Gox. Mm -hmm. And it was based in Japan. So you couldn't transfer money directly. There was no way to like put your credit card info in or somewhere or anything like that. But you had to do was use a money transmission service called Dwala and they required some sort of AML KYC stuff. So it, everything took forever. And so like one of my biggest regrets is not buying Bitcoin when I first heard about it um, because of the annoyances of all of the money transmission that was required to get it onto the exchange before I could buy it. Um, but I did eventually buy uh, a little bit and that little bit has turned into a lot because you know you didn't need to buy very much right. uh, in order for it to sort of take over your portfolio. Uh, but no, I, I wasn't like fully convicted at the beginning. I, in fact, there are very few people that actually do so, sort of go all in at the beginning. Mm -hmm. I think Rob, Rick Falvin, uh, uh, he's the pirate party guy. He's mm -hmm. one of the few people I know that actually did that. And I think he went all in at like $3 where wow. he was just like, this is it. I'm just going to put all my money into Bitcoin. Um, and that uh, I, I'm, I'm sure he's doing very, very well as a result, though. He did like sort of flirt with Bitcoin cash and stuff like that. Uh, but ultimately, uh, you know, what, what really sort of like drove everything was the 2013, uh, you know, uh, you know, like what happened then, um, you know, at the time, uh, it, it, like the big narrative around Bitcoin was, it's like uh, money for drugs and, you know, mm -hmm. darknet and stuff right. like that. Um, and, you know, I like, I was excited during the first bull run and I bought some more and stuff like that. Uh, but really like starting in October after the arrest of Ross Ulbricht, I think for me, it was like, okay, why is this still going up? The Silk Road guy. Yeah, yeah. And, and, you know, like after he was, why, why is this going up? Like mm -hmm, mm -hmm. that site is down and seized by the FBI. Right. Why, why, why is it going up? And I realized like th there was a different aspect to it um, other than drug money. And mm -hmm. and that that for me was like a, a moment of, OK, well, I, I really need to like be more involved in this. So I, I started, uh, you know, contributing to an open source project based on Bitcoin and stuff. And um, I got paid in Bitcoin um, and I I was forced essentially as part of that open source contribution and being paid for it to learn a lot of the Bitcoin internals. Um, and in learning a lot of those internals, um, I, I learned a lot about like the actual cryptography involved and, and mm -hmm. things like that. Uh, so that brought my conviction up another level. And uh, by 2014, you know, it was, it was just like, okay, uh, what pension funds do we have? What 401k, like we're liquidating it all. We're putting it into Bitcoin. And that, that was, um, you know, uh, I had conviction by 2014, but it, it took a few years of really learning about it and understanding what it was all about. Mm -hmm. And that seems like a familiar theme. I, I, I came into the space you know, a few years later than you did um, mm -hmm. after my law school. Mm -hmm. It seems like most people, and I sort of came into it as, okay, well, this is a sort of, you know, QT, interesting idea, um, mm -hmm. being able to transact this money. And, and, and fr from the economic perspective, it sounded interesting. And then sort of being what really sort of did it for me in terms of my, and, and I'm curious to see how, how you uh, transition to the, the moral, thinking of it from a, a social good perspective, 
a morality perspective, a liberation perspective, um, was when I read Saifedean's book, The Bitcoin Standard. Mm -hmm. And especially growing up, yeah, I grew up, you know, I was born in the 90s. And then so 2008 happens in, in my sort of formative years. And my family was in real estate. Uh, and that was just a, a disaster. And then obviously with all the, all the calamities that resulted from that and go, going forward with the massive amounts of government spending that happened. And now we're here with coronavirus. Um, the, and, and you see that authoritarian directives that seemed unimaginable in the West mm-hmm. two years ago are, are now being implemented. Like Australia is now, and, and New Zealand closing like the entire company for like, country for like one COVID case. And, and yeah. arresting people for not wearing masks. And, and then you, you, you juxtapose that with 53% of the world pre-COVID was living under authoritarianism. And, you know, coming from an international family, you know, who, who escaped authoritarian regimes, it, it all sorts of started to make sense. How did you make the connection in terms of looking at it from, actually, this is a, a good place to put my money to, actually, this is the escape from so many of, of our problems. This is, um, this is a in defiance towards government overreach, authoritarianism, control over people's lives, economic uh, impoverishment. When, when did you sort of connect those dots? Yeah, uh, that, that came, I think, for me a little bit later. Uh, so 2014, 15, 16, 17, um, you, know, you, you started to see some rumblings in different places. So China started to ban Bitcoin. They banned Bitcoin like a billion times or mm-hmm. they just kept kind of right. doing it. Um, and, uh, and, you know, there, there were sort of like uh, things like the Cyprus bailout and things like that, which happened in, um, well, I think it was like a haircut or something to that effect where they just took like 10% of the depositors money uh, out oh, of wow. the banks of Cyprus. I, I think this was in 2013. Um, so th- those kinds of stories were, were kind of like mm-hmm. fuel for Bitcoin's fire because mm-hmm. it was like, wait, you can you can just take depositors money right. like that. Um, I, uh, and, you know, now nowadays, you know, there, there's a lot more money printing going on, so they don't have to do that uh, and, you know, make it less obvious uh, that mm-hmm. they are doing stuff like that. But that that was um, that those, I think, were were for me like the big ones. And then, you know, I, I studied uh, history a little bit more. And I found out about Executive Order 6102, and this was just insane, all right? Like this was in 1933, shortly after FDR comes into office. He just issues an executive order saying, okay, no one is allowed to own gold. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And it's crazy that the American public went along with it because mm-hmm. like constitutionally, he doesn't have- And no one talks to. about it. I never learned that in school. Yeah. 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 It, it's just, he just seized all the gold. Mm-hmm. And the ostensible reason he did that was because at the time- you can trade in $20.67 for one ounce of gold. Um, and what, what he did with an act of Congress a year later was he revalued it to $35. So he expanded the money supply by like 50% in like a single stroke mm-hmm. by saying, okay, it's, it's now this. And he, he could uh, fuel all of this uh, New Deal spending and later mm-hmm. like World War II and stuff like that. But, uh, but that, that like to me was just kind of like, okay, what? <laughs> like how? Mm-hmm. how like, how is this allowed to happen? Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and, and then later, you know, you had different things like in India where they banned like, uh, you know, 500 rupee, 500 and 1000 rupee notes, mm-hmm. uh, you know, just ostensibly to kind of get rid of cash. Um, and then we started hearing rumblings about uh, central bank digital currencies. And, you know, in my analysis, I was like, wow, this is going to be an authoritarian's wet dream. This is mm-hmm. like Hitler or Stalin would have never dreamed of uh, having right. something with this much control. Mm-hmm. It, it, uh, and, you know, th- this is coming down the pike. So for me, uh, like the, the cause of liberty and, uh, and wanting to uh, see Bitcoin or seeing Bitcoin as sort of like an antidote to that um, started to come for me like in 2015, 16, 17. And, um, and you know, I mean, it, it definitely like you know, that, that became sort of like a rallying cry for a lot of the community. And, you know, there, there are a lot of libertarians in the Bitcoin space. So, um, you know, reading through a lot of like Austrian economics and stuff, um, you know, the, these things become extremely clear. Sure, absolutely. I, I want to mention on, on the FDR thing, because I, you know, I'm an attorney. I, I always had an interest in constitutional law. And that sort of came late in my education. I don't even, th- I actually, I didn't even learn that in law school. I, I, it came after law school and I'm thinking like they actually 
went to people's homes and dug up gold who they suspected of burying gold. And on top of that, that executive order also not only did it make possession of gold illegal, but it made the contracts in which uh, you you would basically have, you know, pay me a hundred bucks or the gold equivalent. The gold equivalent part got null and void on, on contracts. And it's like, how, mm -hmm. how did that even happen in the United States of America with such such strong constitutional protections and property rights among the strongest in the world. And pretty much unilaterally, right? right it was right, an executive yeah. order, no congressional anything mm -hmm. or even judges saying anything. It was just sort of, okay, I, I guess this is what we're going to do. It was, it was crazy. Right. I, it's, it's unbelievable. And then you, and I think because, and you were born, you were born somewhere. You're an immigrant. Is that right? Yeah. yeah. Where were you from? South Korea. South Korea. Okay. So, um, you know, my, my whole family are immigrants. And I think one of the, one of the things that Americans um, sort of tend to not appreciate or forget is just how bad the world can be and how, how shit can go south, really. Because America has been isolated from so much of the world's misery in its, you know, hundred and you know, a couple hundred years existence, particularly in, in the 20th century, with the exception of the Great Depression. But even that, it was significantly worse in other places, like obviously Weimar Republic mm -hmm. and things of that nature. So we almost feel like that kind of stuff can't happen here. And I think if there's a silver lining of COVID, it was that, oh no, they can use something to justify imposing rights and restrictions upon you, um, mm. taking away your liberties that you never even thought was possible in this country. And within blink of an eye, I mean, how much has, has the country changed in two years? I mean, could you even imagine two years ago, um, you know, people saying that you can't go to church, but then you could yeah. you know, ride outside and, <laughs> you know, I mean, all, all these, all these insane um laws and you, you 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 know liquor stores and weed stores are able to be open but then small businesses can't and churches can't and and it's just like that's not something i thought was even sort of remotely possible in such a short period of time um and so i, I think that that does at least i think a lot of americans have probably changed their tune into thinking that okay maybe we're not actually isolated from all the world's uh calamitous consequences and so today, it's 46 million Americans, I, I read, have Bitcoin, but um, I was listening to uh, Preston, uh, Preston Fish, he had an uh, individual show, Chrysius or something, and he was basically mm -hmm. saying that's a little bit high because he, he estimates probably, um, if you measure it by people who have one-tenth of a Bitcoin, which would be like a sort of sizable amount, uh, you, have, you have stake in the game in a sense, uh, he estimates maybe about 10 million. Mm -hmm. What do you think the Bitcoin adoption curve is right now and what do you project it to be let's say by the end of next cycle so within maybe um like five years or so yeah um that's a that's a tough question uh i i think 10 million sounds about right to me uh mm -hmm. and uh you know that that's about one out of every 30 people people in the u.s like owning uh bitcoin mm -hmm. um i i'm sure way more than that have heard about it but right. it does still feel like you know say circa 95 96 uh internet right mm -hmm. like a lot of people had heard about it but not that many people were on maybe you had a friend that was on aol or something mm -hmm. like that um kind of like you know maybe you have a friend that has an account at coinbase something to that effect um so there there is uh some level of adoption uh but you know, the, the big factor in adoption is how quickly kind of things are going south. So mm -hmm. um, things do seem to be going south and the federal government is spending money like a drunken sailor at the moment and just continually expanding uh, this recent infrastructure bill and like, you know, all, all these like payments out to people and things like that. It's, it's getting to be uh, an enormous amount of money. So um, that, that the balance sheet is going to continue to increase. And if, uh, if there's more money, then uh, you know, it has to go somewhere. Um, stocks are at all time high levels. Real estate is insane and impossible to get right now. And like bids are coming in like, at like 30% above asking oftentimes. Mm -hmm. right, and right, stuff. Right. Yeah. So, uh, you know, there, there's great demand for this stuff. Um, I think Bitcoin benefits significantly as a result because it's one of the few places that you can actually go with the money where you're not going to get screwed. Um, mm -hmm. You know, stocks and real estate being the other two. So, uh, um, I, I expect it to, you know, maybe like quadruple or quintuple, something like that mm -hmm. by then. Uh, so, um, you know, I, maybe 60 million Americans having um, having Bitcoin uh, in five years, I think, is perfectly reasonable. Um, you know, you, you have to also remember that. 
there's a significant number of people that just don't even have bank accounts uh, mm-hmm. and don't don't have any disposable income. So, right. um, you know, maybe I, it would be great if they could start saving in Bitcoin, uh, but they might not have the means or the jobs to be able to do so. So, yeah, we'll mm-hmm. see. Yeah, that, that's, that sounds about right. What do you, so what's your perspective on so speaking back to sort of the, the authoritarianism that, that Bitcoin sort of allows an escape from to a certain extent? What's your perspective on... Um, so why is fiat money immoral and why, mm-hmm. and what is moral about Bitcoin? What are the values that Bitcoin protects and stands for? And why is it uh, civil civilization building currency as, as you described it? Yeah. So uh, fiat money is immoral because it allows for that. There's a huge moral hazard at the center of every central bank, uh, which is the ability to create money out of thin air for the purposes of whatever the government wants. But it's not just at the central bank, it's at every other bank in layers below. This includes commercial banks and retail banks. Uh, Commercial banks lend to businesses uh, in the form of buying up their corporate bonds. Uh, It it goes down all the way to retail um, where, you know, big, from everything from credit cards to mortgages, which is all money essentially created out of thin air. And the, um, the thing is, Every time you like create a loan, basically, and this is how it, it, it's always on the books, is the money is printed as a loan. So, for example, in the federal government, um, when you have a budget of $6 trillion and you have revenue of $4 trillion, the $2 trillion difference is sold as treasuries. Whatever the public and other central banks don't buy is uh, you know, bought by the lender of last resort. That is the central bank. And they will buy, you know, say there's $1.5 trillion left. They'll buy the $1.5 trillion mm-hmm. in... Um, that's with a Tuesday uh, for them these days. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 1.5 trillion. <laughs> and uh, and that, that's money that came out of nothing, right? Um, a similar thing with, uh, you know, corporate bonds. Um, you know, they it's it's fractionally reserved bought, essentially. So uh, they might only have like 100 million in deposits, but there's no real reserve requirement. So they can buy like $2 trillion worth of corporate bonds if they wanted to. Like that, that's, uh, that's how it happens. Um, same for your mortgage, same for your credit card. It's, uh, it's all money created out of nothing. Uh, it isn't from somebody's savings. So what you end up getting is a lot of expansion of money. Um, and you know, it's obviously good for the person that's getting the loan. It's also good for the bank because they're, uh, you know, getting interest. So, you know, economics is the science of figuring out what the unseen effects are. What's, what's the unseen effect? Well, you're expanding the money supply. Every time you expand the money supply, that dilutes everyone else's purchasing power or you are diluting their savings. And anyone that is holding the dollar now has a little less purchasing power. In effect, you're stealing from them by expanding the supply. Um, This would be the same thing if you had shares in a company and somebody just sort of like stealthily issued more shares of it, uh, in which case you'd be diluted because you don't get a share of the company as much as you thought. Um, So that's a form of theft essentially, and it hurts not just uh, you know holders in the United States, uh, you know some of the biggest holders are central banks of other countries, and not just central banks of other countries, but you know people in you know the poorest places in the world. The first currency that people tend to flock to when their own currency is hyperinflating is the dollar. So in places like Venezuela, Zimbabwe, even North Korea, the U.S. dollar reigns supreme. So you are stealing from those people, which is kind of crazy, but that's true. You're stealing from people in the poorest places in the world. So fiat uh, allows for this huge moral hazard of being able to steal from the collective for a personal or a very small group's benefit. And this has happened over and over and over again and continues to happen. Uh, so this is why I call fiat money a cesspool of corruption, cronyism, and theft. It's, it's, it really is very immoral. Now, Bitcoin doesn't have a central bank. And in fact, all of those people, uh, all of the new Bitcoin that's created is uh, done by miners and it is an open process. You don't need anyone's permission to go do it. Um, Whereas you do need permission uh, by the central banks or some bank or uh, whatever in order to expand the monetary supply. Uh, So that that it makes the process a lot more fair and a lot more competitive. Um, So in that sense, uh, Bitcoin is way better than Mm -hmm. all of these... uh, uh, you know, other fiat currencies because it is, you know, it it's, doesn't have a moral hazard. It doesn't have a center. So uh, that means that it, uh, it it allows for all sorts of better things. So 
you know, when, when a government is in control of a currency, they can do things like, uh, you know, censor or confiscate, mm -hmm. uh, censor your transactions or even confiscate mm -hmm. your money, mm -hmm. uh, which many of them have done, right? Like if you're, if you're uh, accused of being a drug dealer or a child pornographer or something like that, they'll just take your right. money. Or the civil forfeiture it. laws even. Which yeah, were, yeah. Yeah, I may say too. Yeah, like where the uh, like hundred thousand dollars is defendant or something like that. Which, which mm -hmm. Yeah, they just take your they just take your hundred thousand dollar car because they allege that some you know there was a packet of cocaine in the background or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And just all all sorts of mm -hmm. ways in which uh, property sort of uh, you know is, is taken over uh, like in an unjust manner. Uh, Bitcoin kind of prevents that at least for money. Um, and if you are your own bank. Uh, it's it's better than even something like physical gold, uh, which can be seized away from you because it has a physical location. Um, with Bitcoin, because it doesn't have a physical location, it can reside in your mind. It can reside on a piece of paper. It could be backed up on, uh, you know, hard drives in seven different locations, of, uh, you know, and require four of their signatures, something like that. It really uh, makes it a lot easier to secure and a lot harder to seize or confiscate or uh, or whatever, which which gives it like sort of like the super property, right? Mm -hmm. And I think that's closer uh, to, you know, what what is actually more moral because if you make something very difficult to steal, then, you know, people are just not going to be able to steal as much and making it a much more moral money. So, um, yeah, that I mean, I, I would say that that's the main argument in the book is really, uh, you know, fiat is immoral because it is very easy to steal and lots of people do it whether they know it or not. And Bitcoin is very hard to steal and therefore it is a much better money and a more moral money. That's it. And, and with respect to you, you make an argument as well with the, the notion of, of high time preference and mm. how basically fiat encourages that sort of behavior and Bitcoin allows you to lower your time preference because you can uh, ensure that your your money isn't being devalued based on the fact that it's it's a known supply. What do you think the societal effects are? So that, that's, a, that's an individual effect, but what do you think the societal benefits are, the sort of second order effects from having a multitude of people in the society have their money in Bitcoin? What does that sort mm -hmm. of allow them to do? I remember when you had a um, you had a discussion with Saif Adin. You guys were, were were sort of talking about something I always mention, which is the, uh, for example, with airplanes. Like, mm. and so much of the the infrastructure technology uh, has not changed in like fifty years, right? So mm. all the information technology where government was kind of unable to impose itself in regulations because going so fast, that was able to sort of to you know uh, advance and um, uh, evolve. Rapidly before they can inter intervene in it, airplanes are actually slower than when my dad was a kid, which is <laughs> yeah. which is insane. And and there there are many there are many aspects of our you know if you go back to the 1960s films, uh, their imagination, their uh, vision of what the 2000s would look like is so different than what mm -hmm. what's actually the case. And obviously, you can add in you know our our step back from from our space exploration activities, which is now starting mm -hmm. to come on board a bit more because of people like Elon Musk. Um, what do you, what do you see sort of like the second order effects of being able to have a hard money like Bitcoin where, mm -hmm. um, you can, you know, which is low time preference, which is, uh, uh, stable, which is a defined supply. Yeah. I, I and I, before I answer that question, mm -hmm. think about like fiat money, right? Like, and, um, essentially it's being stolen from you like all day long. Mm -hmm. And what, what does that do to your mentality? If it's being stolen from you, well, you might as well spend it before it can be stolen, right? Mm -hmm. that, that becomes sort of that attitude. And th this is essentially what high time preference behavior is. It's, well, it's gonna get stolen from you anyway. Mm -hmm. Might as well like make good use of it before that happens. And this happens in like a lot of societies where things are unstable mm -hmm. or if there's a lot of theft or crime or something like that you have a lot more people that are going to be more high time preference because they feel kind of helpless against all of the things that are happening against them. Um, and that's kind of happening at a different level uh, all throughout the world, right? Mm -hmm. Like uh, their uh, savings is sort of like debased away from you mm -hmm. uh, through inflate, monetary inflation and so on. So it makes it very difficult to plan or look uh, far ahead. Uh, what Bitcoin does is because it is impossible to steal uh, if, if you're securing it properly and stuff or very difficult to steal um, it gives you certainty over the long term and that certainty is what allows for low time preference behavior if you have more certainty about okay well 
you know, I have, you know, one Bitcoin now, well, that's still going to be one Bitcoin five years from now, um, unless I spend some of it. And, you know, the one Bitcoin five years from now is probably going to be worth a lot more. So, you know, it, it's going to be better for me to try to figure out a way to keep that one Bitcoin and survive up until then. So I can enjoy myself then, right? Like the, that, that sort of like thinking of uh, ahead is, uh, is induced by Bitcoin because of its lack of uh, ability to be stolen from and the, this very strong property right that you have over it uh, where, such that even the government has a difficult time taking it away from you. So uh, as a result of that, you get civilization building. When, when you have certainty over the long term, you tend to think about, okay, well, how am I going to live for a while? Uh, you know, what, what, what am I going to build out? And this is something that I encounter with Bitcoiners all the time. Many of them are thinking about having families and, you know, like, okay, well, what, what, what am I going to do? And to make sure that their futures are secure and so on, mm -hmm. um, which, which makes sense because if, if you are thinking of the future, I mean, this, one of the responsibilities that you are going to have as a parent is making sure that your kids are grown, you know, without, uh, you know, too much, uh, you know, in the way of uh, bad experiences and so on. So, you know, uh, doing that uh, causes uh, this low time preference behavior. Mm -hmm. uh, and oftentimes that means building stuff uh, mm -hmm. and creating things and uh, capital formation and, uh, you know, investing in capital goods and, uh, instead of like direct consumer goods and things like that, uh, which builds, literally builds up civilization, right? Like the more capital goods you have, the uh, the more efficient everyone's labor is going to be, and you you get abundance that way. Um, in which case, you know you can build more stuff and uh, and have a more thriving society. Uh, but you know if things are kind of being stolen away from you, like we have in the fiat economy, uh, you know the incentive is the exact opposite. You want to spend now. Uh, you want to consume now. Uh, you know you you care less about the future, and you would. Uh, you're going to kind of eat your own seed grain or uh, whatever the analogy is. And you, you end up screwing yourself over and you, you start taking apart even the things that have already been built uh, because, well, it's going to be taken away from you anyway by some way or means. So might as well just, uh, you know, spend it and get what I can for it right now. Um, and that's literally decivilizing, right? It's making things less efficient and you get, you know, plain, uh, planes that are, like worse, uh, you know, objectively speaking, because you're, you know, tearing down the apparatus of, of, of um, you know, capital goods and labor efficiency and things like that. Um, and, you know, like, if you, if you think about it, like research and development is a form of capital good mm -hmm. that isn't really being invested, especially in places like the airline industry, which are essentially a bunch of zombie companies uh, that mm -hmm. have no business like running, but the government keeps subsidizing them so they can just keep working, even though they're not at all efficient or innovating in any way. Um, you know, like you get stuff like that and it, it's a slow and inevitable decline uh, until like there's sort of like a much more sudden decline uh, that would be forecast for a pure fiat economy. Thankfully, there's Bitcoin and there is sort of like a turn towards a more low time preference, uh, you know, society that that's at least happening among Bitcoiners. I imagine that it'll spread more to others as they get into Bitcoin because Bitcoin is just superior money. Mm -hmm. So what you're saying is it's better to have a society that values uh, investments into the future to basically produce better humans and better um, technologies and innovation, which require a lot of capital formation, uh, rather than having a society that has its money stolen and uh, spends it on cheap Chinese goods, basically. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The, the thing about theft is uh, it, it makes everything unstable and right. it makes it very difficult to plan because uh, at any time the government can come in and say, we're going to tax you for this that you didn't expect. Um, and that level of uncertainty makes it very difficult to plan ahead or mm -hmm. to build something, uh, even if you have an inclination to do so. So right. there's probably a ton of people in the economy right now mm -hmm. that would love to like, you know, they, they have some talent, good skills, whatever, uh, or ideas for new products that they can build out that would be better than what's out in the market today. But they can't go and try that stuff, right. largely because they think it's too risky, right? Like the uh, the risk of uh, you, yourself going bankrupt or 
uh, you know, like uh, you're going to probably need to take out loans in order to fund that and stuff. It, it, it makes it a lot harder. Mm-hmm. Under Bitcoin, what you can do if you have those dreams is to just save up in Bitcoin. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. now, now like five years later, you have plenty of money to go and try uh, whatever it is that you want to try. And because it's your money, you're going to spend it a lot more efficiently instead of like sort of the current model, which is get VC funding and spend like a drunken sailor and pretend that you your company is worth more because it happens to be popular or something like that. It, it, it's uh, instead of being unmoored from reality, you're 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 getting closer to reality, which I think ultimately is better for everybody because it's actually based on fundamentals and not on you know sort of insane money printing and these fantasies that we have that it's uh, worth X when really it's just um, you know a lot of people putting money in because they have it has nowhere else to go. I think what you say is really important too, and it also speaks to one of the most pernicious consequences of all of this is the fact that family development, starting a family, is being delayed, is 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 not happening at all in a lot of cases, is because people my age, people in their 20s and 30s, who already basically racked by student loan debt, which is a consequence mm-hmm. as well of this, this fiance economy. Um, and then on top of that, you have actual inflation, if we measure it by the pre-1980 standard, is something like 10 to 12%, it's probably even higher than that by this point, with a 30% increase in the money supply as well. So you're losing 10, 12%. Uh, how many people are getting 10, 12% raises every year? Not too many, that's really, right. I mean, maybe you go a couple percent if you're lucky. Um, so you're sort of in this continual rat race. So you, you, you don't feel secure enough to be able to start a family. Um, you, you have all this, this bad debt piling up. Um, mm-hmm. your, your job isn't keeping up with the pace of the real inflation, which is being, mm-hmm. um, you know, which is obscured by the CPI data, because again, 1979, mm-hmm. we're looking at double digit inflation if you measure by then. Um, so having, having a currency is not, that is actually hard. I made a, I made a joke in my, my last podcast about Bitcoin, about how Bitcoin is the, uh, the hardest money ever made short of sleeping with Harvey Weinstein mm-hmm. or working at an Amazon warehouse. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so have, having, nice. a, having a, a hard money that isn't subject to depreciation by people in the Federal Reserve or the government um, destroying its value allows you to sort of take risks, allows you to go start off that business, start that business, allows you to plan for the future, allows you to even have a family. And one of the biggest Mm. crises that we're going to have as a society, I think, is going to be our, um, Japan's already seeing it, Italy's seeing it, Spain's seeing it, sort of topsy-turvy upside-down pyramid, where Mm. you have a lot of old people, you don't have that much young people, and the young people themselves aren't having kids, and who's going to pay for the old people, especially with a depreciating currency, right? So that's, Mm. that's the sort of message that I, I know that you, you, um, like to mm-hmm. advance as well. And I, particularly with people in my age group, sort of understand things in this way, because as you said, people feel like they're being stolen, but I think it's even more than that because they instinctively know they're being stolen, right? Like I never really mm-hmm. thought of me being stolen from, but we all sort of see, well, okay, but tuition is going up like you know, double digit percent on this mm-hmm. year. And the housing, I can't afford a house. My parents, you know, were you know, people say my parents were able to afford a house when they were in their twenties and I can't even afford a house in my forties now in the same area. Mm-hmm. Um, so they instinctively know something's wrong, but they can't exactly put a, put a, a thought to it, put a, a word to it as, as you do. And you demonstrate mm-hmm. that, well, you are being stolen from, and, and this is, this is how, how exactly works, which I like. Um, I want to ask you about, yeah, and yeah good. Well, well, so you are being stolen from, you're being stolen from so much that you're going negative, right? Like, mm-hmm. which is debt. Right. Mm-hmm. It, it's not just that your stuff that you already currently own is stolen from your right. future is being stolen from through mm-hmm. that. Mm-hmm. And that that's an even more pernicious thing. And this is the something more that I think that you were talking about, which is, you know, you're, you're being stolen from, but not just your current self, your future self is mm-hmm. also being stolen from. And, you know, this is the pernicious thing about debt and especially government debt. it's not just our grandchildren that are being stolen. It's your future self, right? right like right. You, you have to pay the piper. And if you're going to live another 20 years, you know, that, that you're being stolen from too. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that, that level of theft is just so pernicious and so um, like destabilizing. And mm-hmm. it, it puts you in a state of essentially slavery uh, because you have this debt that you have to service the whole time. And, you know, mo- most people just like, 
because they can't save and they're they're continually being stolen from mm -hmm. you get into this enormous amounts of debt and you know next thing you know like half your life is over and you have like zero to show for it it's mm -hmm. all consumed on the front end without right. anything like to uh to back it up basically right and i i think as well what plays into that as well as why people sometimes fail to make the connection i think most people still do uh particularly like i said the millennials although mm -hmm. hopefully they're going to start to get it. It's like, for example, your Spotify membership is like 10 bucks a month. It's like, oh, I could get mm -hmm. all this music for free. So there are, there are certain things that are like incredibly deflationary. Your, your TV is mm -hmm. cheaper and you know, you're, you can get every book on Amazon for like, you know, fraction of the price of what they used to be. So you don't actually draw the connection because the, the sort of simple things, uh, the, the, the entertainment things, the sort of mm -hmm. convenient things seem to be cheaper but all the things everybody wants like the house the the healthcare, the education the um you know there's the, the certain cars like that stuff is all going up and you can't quite yeah. understand why how is that happening because you know now i can get every you know this cd collection i have in my spotify this playlist okay. would have cost me like a thousand bucks you know a few mm -hmm. years ago and now i get it for 10 bucks a month so i, I think it's really important to, to draw that connection yeah, yeah. So I mean, th this is what we would call like bread and circuses, right? Like mm -hmm. and this, right, this exactly. is what the Romans did, where you know they they would mollify this populace that was obviously like uh, you know a, a large amount of them were like Roman slaves, so they 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 were always like concerned about revolt or whatever. Mm -hmm. But it was okay. Let's make sure that they are entertained. So we're mm -hmm. gonna give them bread. Uh, you know, make sure that there's like a food program and some sort of entertainment, and that seems to be the case today. I, mm. I don't know if Spotify is profitable, right? Like, and mm. a lot, if they're not profitable, well, where are they getting the money? Well, mm -hmm, they're getting mm -hmm. it from investors. Well, mm -hmm. who are the investors? Well, it, it's usually like VCs, that's all newly printed money. So right. in a sense, uh, you know, we're, we're getting bread and circuses, but through sort of the market and, you know, there, there's tons of food stamps. We're not getting bread and circus, sure we're getting weed and Netflix. That's the- <laughs> <laughs> and, and it's a lot cheaper for right. the people in power because right. if it's digital, you can just sort of infinitely copy mm -hmm. it, right? Like it's, a, mm -hmm. it's really only bandwidth cost, uh, which um, honestly gets cheaper every year, which is why you're able to get 1099 for, uh, a Spotify membership and you can listen to all the music you want because it's only like a megabyte per minute. And even if you're listening for 24 hours a day, it's, it's actually not that much. Um, and you're, uh, you know, they, they can actually afford to send it to you. So yeah, all, all that is really just sort of like a way for the government to keep you sort of blind uh, to the fact that you know everything else is kind of getting worse. And mm. this is what the Romans did during you know, times like bread and circuses was a much more a thing during uh, the uh, the debasement of the denarius, uh, mm -hmm. more so than like earlier uh, times of Rome when they of Rome when they had harder money. So, you know, um, that's basically what what's happening, and that's why like people aren't necessarily waking up because, in a sense, um, their immediate needs are sort of like satisfied, and they're entertained and distracted from mm -hmm. all of the stuff that really they would learn about if uh, if things were, I guess, a little more painful. But, mm -hmm. you know, this, this is how you anesthetize a, a large part of the populace. Absolutely. And and it's not only that, it's also the, I think, the, on the corporate front as well. You know, you see like Raytheon putting up a gay pride flag on, on during gay pride. <laughs> you know, it's like they make, they make missiles that can you know, kill people. Uh, and it's yeah. like, you know, it's like and, and Amazon will put up like the BLM banner on their, on their website. And meanwhile, you know, they, they have all sorts of um, African-Americans and uh, Hispanic employees working at their warehouses who complain of, of horrible conditions uh, of their work and not being able to use the bathroom and all sorts of things. So what do they do? They, they distract and say, no, 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 look, we're the good guys. And meanwhile, they can get away with their practices as well. Um, and those are the same people, I think, as well. I think this is where some the libertarians and conservatives sometimes miss the connection in this respect is that Bitcoin is not only powerful because of its ability to counteract government oppression, government uh, takeover of liberties and diminishing of liberties with respect to the people, but the, as, as well as the corporations today can basically block you out. It first started with things like Twitter and Facebook where they cancel your speech or deflatform you for things you say, but now it's getting even more dangerous and scary because you, I don't know if you saw the, the whole PayPal 
anti-defamation league thing where they're saying, okay, well, you know, if, if mm -hmm. we deem you to be a uh, extremist or th say things that we deem is, is unfit for the public to hear, well, then you can't take PayPal. And Visa MasterCard did this with, mm -hmm. um, with, with Pornhub. And apparently only fans the other day had a, um, were basically pressured into the, um, were, were pressured into taking, getting rid of explicit uh, content because of big banks like that. So everything about those companies you know, it's mm -hmm. it, it, it's clear it's not going to stop there. It, it starts off with people. It starts off with sort of things that we can sign, kind of agree with, and then it goes on to, oh well, we don't like what you're saying. Uh, we don't like what you represent as a company. So um, yeah, you can't transact with Visa or Mastercard or PayPal or Stripe or uh, any of these things, and then you're locked out of the modern financial ecosystem as well. Yeah, uh, and the, yeah. this is a slippery slope of authoritarianism. Uh, mm -hmm. You you almost always start with something that seems reasonable and then they just take a little bit more power each time and it gets less and less reasonable to the point where we're locked out of our own neighborhoods because and we're forced to stay indoors or whatever I mean, this is how liberty dies it's mm -hmm. uh it's with a whimper not with a bang so um you know like what what can we uh, like how does bitcoin fix that i think is kind of your question um basically uh Bitcoin it has an ethic of uh, verified don't trust. So, uh, you know, centralized services are essentially all trust magnets. Uh, so, if, if you're on Twitter, you're trusting them with all of your data and all your tweets and things like that, and they can put out whichever things that they want because mm -hmm. they are the central controller. And this is the same with uh, Google, Facebook, or you know, I mean, like you were saying with PayPal, Visa, and everything else. Um, the the ethic of Bitcoin, I think, is much more towards verification, not trusting towards decentralization. Um, and that that's going to mean that people are hosting their own stuff. So it's one thing uh, to, uh, you know, put your stuff on Facebook, right? Like some, uh, some weird message that Facebook doesn't like. And in a sense, uh, the property boundaries there are very fuzzy. So it's not at all clear what is yours and what is theirs, because they clearly own the databases and the servers that have all of the data, but you're the one that created it. So who owns what, right? Like, and who, right. like, like it, there's no clear boundary, uh, but if you're running your own server and you're, you're pushing it out to people that want it, then there's no problem. There's no central party. There's no um, sort of single point of failure or a choke point at which, uh, you know, things can kind of go awry. Um, Nick Sabo says that trusted third parties are security holes, and they definitely are um, because they have the ability to control things. And uh, and we, we are getting things controlled, uh, you know, because of these giant wall gardens uh, where all of the servers are run by the same company and things. Um, but uh, one of the optimistic things about Bitcoin is that we're moving kind of away from that model. And the Lightning mm -hmm. Network is an excellent example. Right, Everyone right. runs your own, you run your own Lightning Node. Can, can you and explain you the Lightning whatever. Network? Because I'm still a bit confused about myself. So it's mm -hmm. how, how far along in the process is something that's completed? Is there something we're in the middle of? And how does that change uh, Bitcoin? Yeah, so the Lightning Network is already up and functioning and mm -hmm. you can pay people with it and everything. Um, if you think of Bitcoin as, uh, you know, this ledger and you, you, um, every single transaction uh, uh, that's ever been on Bitcoin is in this ledger that we call the blockchain. Mm -hmm. um, that, that's uh, what you can, you can uh, settle Bitcoin transactions on chain, right? Like uh, I can pay you and then there's an entry there and that represents my paying you. Mm -hmm. um, what, uh, what you can do, uh, though, if you're doing a lot of business is, uh, and th this happens in like uh, all, all sorts of other financial markets all the time. If, if you and I are doing like 100 transactions a day, you, you don't want to put 100 ledger entries in there because mm -hmm. one, it's going to cost a lot. And two, it's just very inefficient. So what, what we could do is just you know, figure out the balance at the end of the day and then settle once a day. Okay, so that 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 provides one transaction, um, and this is a, a very common thing. It's called technical netting, um, and that that's sort of the term for it. Uh, but that that's that's a perfectly fine way to do it, and that's essentially what the Lightning Network is built on. And it's uh it, what it's what we would call sort of a payment channel. So instead of me uh, paying you on chain, I would pay you through this payment channel, and then we'd settle this payment channel every once in a while. And it would only go into the chain. So, uh, you know, it, it, there would only be one entry on the chain. And that one entry would uh, represent maybe like a thousand transactions between us or something like that. Now, if I have a channel with you and you have a channel with Bob, I could pay Bob through you because I can pay you 
five bucks and you can pay Bob five or five Bitcoin or whatever, right? Like some amount. And that, that would mean that I pay Bob. And that in turn means that uh, you can have another uh, another person on the end of it and I could pay whoever Bob is connected to and whoever is connected to that person. And you suddenly you have a network of channels and that's what we call the lightning network. So anybody that's connected with sufficient capacity, I can essentially pay more or less instantly. And I, I skipped over the technical details, but it's done in a way that is trustless. So um, if, if you try to screw me over on a payment channel and not pay me as much as I'm due, um, then I get to take all your money. Like there, there, there are certain rules like that that can get executed. And there are sort of like justice or uh, punishment transactions that are available if, uh, if one party uh, to a channel like closes it early or, some, or, or tries to do something nefarious, uh, which is wonderful because now if you have a trustless payment network, now you can you can you can send back and forth and so on. Uh, so uh, in order to do that, every single node or er, like any anyone that has payment channels open has to be running a full node and watching the blockchain to see if anyone is cheating them out of their money and so mm -hmm. on. Um, and that that's essentially how it works. Is uh, you know you're you're not just uh, just a consumer. You're you're sort of serving up data to all sorts of other people as well. Um, and that's the model of decentralization that I was mm -hmm. talking about. Is instead of all of the data being in one place, essentially one server and everyone else is a client. Um, you you have a different model where everyone's running their own servers and then there's no third party involved that holds all of the data for you. Instead, you hold your own data and you can make it so that, okay, these people are going are subscribed to my feed and it could be a bunch of tweets or whatever. Um, and there's no one censoring it because it's direct peer to peer communication. And this was actually what the internet was designed to be right. from the very beginning. Um, it's unfortunately gotten away from that as we've uh, like grown addicted to walled gardens. And even, you know, most of the, consumer internet is built around this paradigm that you're going to be mostly a client and not serve up stuff. So typically your download speed is way higher than your upload speed for that reason, because you're not serving up data. Uploading is serving up data to other people. So, uh, you know, that I think is sort of the model that we're, uh, we're experimenting with in Lightning. And you have apps like Sphinx Chat and uh, this podcasting stuff where, you know, like you host your own podcast in a particular place. And you could charge money for people to listen to it, right? Like for each, uh, you know, minute of listening, you know, you pay like a hundred sats or something. And that's that's a very simple way in which uh, you don't have to have any other person sort of involved. And you can imagine you can do some, something similar with YouTube videos, tweets, blog posts, um, you know, even merchandise or something like that. Uh, in which case, you know, there, there's no risk of censorship because it's all peer to peer. And, uh, you know, you can, you can have mirrors and you can have other, uh, you know, nodes that are serving up con uh, content as, uh, a, a, you know, a, as well for money and, and things like that. And because you have this native money layer, like um, you don't have to have like very invasive stuff like advertising come in. Uh, because you can just pay for it directly. Uh, all of us are paying for the content that we are reading and watching. It's just in the form of ads. Uh, and it's very annoying. And I think it's kind of a very inefficient and dishonest way to go about business. I think you should just straight up pay for it. And that way it's a market transaction. And uh, as uh, you know, someone from North Korea told me, like there's something sacred about market transactions where both people are getting some something in equal exchange. Because now you kind of have a contract, right? You have obligations to the other person. But if it's given away for free, um, then you really don't have a right to complain when it's taken away from you. And uh, and that that's uh, unfortunately the um, the thing that uh, that that's been the model uh, of the internet in many different countries, actually. Like where, uh, in in exchange for them giving you something for free, what you pay with is not with money, but with your compliance. And when you comply, like. You know they can de demand greater and greater compliance to the point where you get like a, a totalitarian state like right. you do in North Korea, um, and that's exactly where you don't want to end up. Right, Market transactions where you're actually paying for stuff is uh, should be the norm, and mm -hmm. there's there's something beautiful about it uh, that that makes it a lot more fair and just rather than you know free stuff uh, where it's an unequal exchange and you're giving up stuff that has long-term consequences that you don't really understand or know about. I see. Um, and what's your response speaking? So speaking of the technological aspects mm -hmm. of Bitcoin, mm -hmm. what's your response to the 
ETH people who say, uh, well, you know, ETH is ETH is the money that people will uh, coalesce around because it's it has the smart contracts, it it has all these applications and NFTs and all sorts of other currencies based on its base layer, and therefore ETH is really the you know the best money. Mm-hmm. What, what's what's your response to that? Well, it, well, it's it's obvious that uh, Ethereum marketing is going overboard and trying to uh, deceive the public. Uh, first of all, smart contracts are in Bitcoin, uh, and it's been there from the beginning. This idea that smart contracts are uh, are an innovation of Ethereum or some uh, some invention of Ethereum is complete and utter bunk. And anyone that thinks so is an idiot. Uh, what they have are touring complete smart contracts, which are completely insecure and result in all sorts of hacks, all sorts of vulnerabilities, because it is not analyzable from a technical perspective. It is extremely difficult to audit. And this is why it, uh, the Ethereum ecosystem is so complicated because of the current completeness. Mm-hmm. Uh, not only that, but all, uh, a lot of these projects, quote unquote, that are on Ethereum are straight up scams. And you are more vulnerable to those if you are doing the uh, being on that uh, on that platform. Uh, there there have been so many rug pulls and hacks and things of that nature because the people that are programming on there are just straight up incompetent. They are making backdoors to stuff and um, you know like exit scamming and doing all sorts of things uh, which are incredibly easy on Ethereum, uh, whereas they are relatively hard on Bitcoin. Um, so yeah, I, I don't think there's any legitimacy to that. And you know, the biggest reason not to go to Ethereum is because it is completely and utterly centralized. There was a, a quote unquote smart contract hack uh, may, maybe like a week and a half ago on the Poly network. And it was across multiple chains, including Binance chain and Ethereum. Uh, but the main, uh, main thing that was interesting is that Nominally, the quote unquote hacker got $600 million worth of crypto, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, basically, the Poly Network found out about it and they um, called all the exchanges and said, stop trading uh, from this address. They called up all the miners, do not mine any transactions from this address. Basically, censored transactions from a particular address. Now, as we were talking about before, it always starts with something reasonable, right? Like, uh, you know, any, any sort of authoritarian tendency. Oh, you know, that, that doesn't sound bad. Let's, uh, let's, let's allow that. Uh, well, they, they just did it for that. Guess what? They can also do it for all sorts of other things. Mm-hmm. And uh, the quote unquote hacker ended up settling for a $500,000 uh, equivalent bug bounty. So in a sense, he got less than 0.1% of the entire value of it. Or another way to think about it is 99.9% of the value is controlled by the central controller. So if they don't want you to have this uh, this money, then they will make it hell for you to do so, and it's going to cost you 99.9%. So in a sense, like if you're keeping money in Ethereum, uh, you're kind of playing with fire because at any time they can just pull the rug out from under you, and likely 99.9% of your wealth that's in there. Can be pulled at any moment. Can you explain that a little bit more? Uh, so, what what could like in in your um, if you were to envision sort of a worst case scenario of like, let's say there were mm-hmm. they were they want to do something bad like what could Ethereum do to you're you're someone you you have your Ethereum on Coinbase maybe you have it on your Coinbase wallet um, what what could they do to diminish your um, Ethereum holdings or destroy it? Or yeah. So um, so suppose that there's some heavy regulation coming something like mm-hmm. that right like uh, and, uh, and this is not that far away, by the way, Gary Gensler of the SEC, um, you know, he, he wants to regulate uh, a lot of these coins. So he may very well say, okay, every Ethereum transaction needs to be AML KYC, something like that. And Coinbase mm-hmm. maybe goes, you know what, we can't handle all that paperwork, right. we're, 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 we're done. Um, and then Ethereum uh, Foundation says, uh, you know what, like for every, uh, you know, the United States is obviously not friendly towards us. So we're no longer going to service any transactions on uh, from the United States because we'd be breaking some laws and they might throw us in prison, something like that. Mm-hmm. In which case, okay, like all those coins are stuck. <laughs> like mm-hmm. it, it's it's right. literally like you you I mean that that's a far out scenario, admittedly, but mm-hmm. it, it, the, in principle they can uh, sort of change the ledger at any time. Also, right, mm-hmm. like they can just be like, hey, uh, and they have done this uh, 2016 with the Dow. 
um, basically reset the ledger to whatever they want um, because they hard fork all the time. And a hard fork is a backwards incompatible upgrade. And if it's backwards incompatible, all rules are gone, right? Like they're, uh, everything is up in the air and anything is possible. So you could, for example, if they wanted to hard fork to where, you know, uh, yeah, uh, every person from a certain IP range, like you're uh, like, we're going to delete your balance or something like that. Mm-hmm. Or if there's evidence that you did something uh, that was against the laws of the United States or, or, or whatever. And, uh, you know, I mean, that's just one particular scenario, but there's many, many, many others that I, that probably people haven't even thought of mm-hmm. in which it can, it's vulnerable because that's the nature of centralized things. There are a hundred different ways in which a central trusted third party can get compromised. Right, right, um, right. But you know, like uh, in a decentralized network, there's no sort of systemic risk like right. that. Any individual has probably similar risks, but they have to target you specifically. It's not a systemic risk like it is with Ethereum or any of these other altcoins. I see. So in a sense, to make it into sort of practical terms, uh, you know, Bitcoin is almost governed by a constitution, whereas these other coins are basically sort of ruled by they could be ruled on by a whim they could change the rules yeah yeah so so bitcoin is governed by software it's right straight up software right. it, it, it's it's better than a constitution because we know exactly what everything means mm-hmm. um but but with uh ethereum cardano ripple whatever they're ruled by people and mm-hmm. people are whimsical and mm-hmm. capricious and arbitrary and sometimes even malicious or incompetent in right. which case all your funds are at risk and that's mm-hmm. that, that's that's the problem are there any um are there any anything outside of bitcoin that you have interest in or whatever invest your time or money in or do you just not have do you just not like the rest of the space or how, how do you yeah, go about I, don't, I, I think the rest of the space is scammy um mm-hmm. and i i really think they are no better than fiat money in the sense that you have a central control controller and they do things that I think are very immoral. So um, Ethereum had a giant pre-mine, right? Like they printed tokens for themselves. Mm -hmm. Um, And most of these tokens have that, Uh, like Ripple printed an enormous Mm -hmm. amount of tokens for themselves. And and that's just straight up stealing. Uh, And, and, you know, they make very deceitful claims like, Mm -hmm. hey, like, uh, and they, um, you know, promote things that uh, are straight up scams, uh, like straight up Ponzi schemes, even. Uh, so, yeah, I, I think they're they're uh, you know vehicles for speculative frenzies, um, it, you know, like sort of for inflaming greed in people and things like that. Uh, so I, I think they are really evil, and I don't think anyone should uh, or any Christian anyway should invest in any of that stuff because it's it's you're you're just sort of like perpetuating this uh very um bad system of uh you know like sort of evil i i think uh so there there's a there's a lot of that um so yeah and even outside of the crypto space i think like investing has gone to a really weird space where it's more a keynesian beauty contest than anything mm-hmm, fundamental mm-hmm. so in a sense like i i don't see much that's worth investing in other than bitcoin makes sense yeah i i I see what you're saying i mean it's almost like the whole point of crypto was to um not have to trust people and you're you're saying well Mm -hmm. if you mess any of these other ones you're you're going back to square one in a sense because you're trusting people not to screw Mm -hmm. you Mm -hmm. that's right uh one one last thing i want to ask you is uh so where bitcoin seems to be coming back up so we've got some uh up upward motivation in, in, in its price action do you uh do you think from what you've been reading, the the data you've been reading, the metrics, do you think we're headed for another sort of parabolic rise before the year ends, somewhat similar to what we had in, in previous cycles? Uh, if so, what's what are sort of the numbers that you're looking at? Yeah, I mean, the, the only sort of like technical analysis of Bitcoin's price that's ever made any sense to me is the stock to flow mm-hmm, model. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, and that uh, that's held so far. And it's within a fairly decent range. Uh, I think plan B predicted like three years ago uh, mm-hmm. that Bitcoin would reach 55,000. And I had him on my podcast and he was like, yeah, I regretted making that prediction because I, I wanted it to be higher. Um, 
you know, he later came out with the S2FX model, which predicted like a 288,000 Bitcoin. I think both numbers are definitely achievable. It really depends on how heated the space gets and mm-hmm. what the frenzy is like towards the end. And typically the top lasts for like 20 minutes, right? Like, right, right, right. Like the last top was like uh, 19,000 mm-hmm. and it really didn't last very long. Um, mm-hmm. And it was maybe like a day when it, when it stayed there. Right. And like the, the spike up to like, 19.5 was like really not that long. Mm-hmm. Um, so I expect some some sort of price action that's very similar to that, where there is a frenzy, 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 and then it looks overheated and it goes a little further than you think. Mm-hmm. And then it tops. And then uh, just when people think it's like a permanent thing, then it, it, it right, starts right. to go down and then right. you bottom. So, um, you know, uh, yeah, I, I think a hundred uh, to 300 is, you know, like that, those mm-hmm. seem like reasonable numbers to yeah. me, but who knows? Um, but yeah, I, I do expect um, some some sort of correction towards the S2F model, um, which uh, has held so far. Uh, mm-hmm. That doesn't mean it proves anything, but it, right. uh, from a logical a priori, uh, like uh, you know, first principles perspective, this this makes the most sense to me. Mm-hmm. I, I agree with that. It, it seems to be um, have a remarkable track record so far, uh, which is cool. Mm-hmm. Well, anyway, Jimmy, thanks so much for for being on. Where can people find you? Uh, Twitter at Jimmy Song. I have a newsletter, jimmysong.substack.com. You can read it every Monday. I, I, I put out sort of a newsletter about like the technical stuff. Uh, there's usually an article I write and some economic uh, stuff as well. So um, yeah, and you can you can follow all that I'm doing in my newsletter uh, along with, uh, you know, like links for my books and things like that. So amazing. yeah, there you go. Right, well, I, I had an amazing time, uh, really fascinating conversation. So Thanks again. Appreciate it. Thank you. If you enjoyed our show, please click subscribe to stay up to date with our YouTube channel and podcast and give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts so we can keep delivering guys some great content. Thanks again, and we will be back next week. And probably sex robots. We stand for a free and open debate and exchange of ideas. And if you disagree with anything we talk about, you are a racist and no better than Hitler. What? Let's get started.